Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Oh, 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 thank you. Hi, queens, queers, dykes, and interlopers. You guys, welcome <laughs> to a very special episode of Pantasocracy. One that I hope will add to the gaiety of the nation, because today at Pantasocracy, we are looking at the world through rose pink tinted glasses while sliding backwards down a rainbow. <laughs> and um, it's not like Pantasocracy is normally very straight or even very normal, I suppose, but tonight's gathering of our cabaret of conversations, I'm with my tribe, so to speak, um, but not without any reason, because um, we are celebrating a special anniversary, uh, which you may or may not be very well aware of, and it might come as a shock to those of you who are on the younger end of the spectrum in our audience here, and there's a few of them, because it is only 25 years ago since being queer stopped being a crime in Ireland. And so we are celebrating that uh, milestone when homosexuality was decriminalized in this country in 1993 by talking to a number of my friends. Now, normally, of course, I'm accused of always bringing my friends on, but I know every gay and lesbian in this country, so <laughs> it's impossible for me today not to have my friends on. So some of them I've known not so very long, and some of them are old, old, old <laughs> friends. So first up, I'd like you all to please welcome Mr. Tony Walsh. Uh, Tony has come all the way from the gay capital of Ireland, Clonmel County Tipperary. <laughs> Tony is the force behind the IQA, that is the Irish Queer Archive, and he has recently, very beautifully, I think, been using social media to retell the mm. story of the tragic event that is often credited with triggering Ireland's gay rights movement, and that is the murder of Declan Flynn in Fairview Park in 1982. So, thank you, Tony. Hi, gorgeous. Uh, over there beside Tony, that handsome man there is from Ovens, County Cork. Yes, that is a real, live, <laughs> actual place. It is the Velvet Voice, Jack O'Rourke. <laughs> Jack is the first return guest to this show. Jack was a guest to the show two years ago in our first run, I think. And uh, it'll come as no surprise to you that Jack is going to do a few songs for us later. And when he was on the first time, he sang uh, his beautiful song, Silence, which played a big part in the marriage equality referendum back then. So thanks for coming back, Jack. You're welcome. Thank you. I've just rhymed. Thanks for coming back, Jack. <laughs> then on the other side over here, now uh, we did plan to have Izzy Kamikaze. And if you know Izzy, you know that she, nothing would stop her getting anywhere she wanted to go. But unfortunately, she's had some car trouble, which seems very lesbian to me. Um, <laughs> but like a bad lesbian, she didn't have her toolbox with her and she hasn't been able to fix it. So we're hoping Izzy might come running into the studio at some point. But in the meantime, Vicky, you're going to have to be our lone lesbian voice today. But I think you can handle it. Um, <laughs> Vicky, well, when I think of Vicky, her real knack is turning darkness into laughter and then allowing us all to give it a good kick up the arse. She's a storyteller, writer, performance artist, and as she would say herself, she's a proud queer woman. She's, she's working double times today. And finalement, over there, because I needed somebody on the guest list who I could, you know, swoon over, it's the young and charming Mr. Robbie Lawler. 
Apart from being beautiful, Robbie and I have something else in common. We both know what it's like <laughs> to tell a new boyfriend that you're HIV positive. And um, while Robbie may have started out hoping to be the next David Attenborough, he was studying zoology, he is now a full-time advocate on behalf of people living with HIV. So thanks for being here, Robbie. <laughs> but first, if you've ever listened to the show before, you'll know what's coming because I get to uh, talk about a subject that I actually know something about for a change uh, in the panty monologues. A couple of years ago, I was in a gay bar one night and I fell into conversation with a, a young guy standing beside me. Now, he can't have been more than 19 or 20. He was on his big Saturday night out with his group of similarly aged friends. He seemed like a nice guy. He was friendly, smart, you know, confident, ordinary really, normal. You know, nothing about him suggested that he was about to violently turn my world upside down and leave me gasping for air in shock. But that is exactly what he was about to do. Now, I don't remember now what it was that prompted me to do this, but at one point while I was chatting to him, I made a passing reference to Diana Ross. And it was then that this seemingly ordinary, nice young man looked at me and said... Who's Diana Ross? <laughs> <laughs> I know! <laughs> I was forced to contemplate the huge gulf in time and experience that existed between me and, you know, that young apostate in the bar. You know, a gulf that was, in some ways, so enormous that Diana Ross, peace be upon her, was only the glittering perfect tip of an iceberg of things that we didn't have in common. You know, me and this confident young man who so owned the world around him that he felt no need to look backwards. See, he would not have recognized 1983, 35 years ago, when I was an awkward 15-year-old with a mop of curly hair, you know, embarrassing acne, and a slow realization that the gnawing, insistent, terrifying thought I'd been trying to ignore for at least as long as I had acne just wasn't going away that I was a queer. And he wouldn't have recognized the TV shows that I watched either. You know, Charlie's Angels, The Man from Atlantis, MTUSA. He wouldn't have recognized my music collection. He wouldn't have recognized Spandau Ballet or Howard Jones or Tears for Veers or Laura Branigan. And he certainly wouldn't have recognized Declan Flynn. Declan Flynn, the young man from Whitehall who was beaten to death in Fairview Park for being gay. Declan Flynn, the young man whose five killers were found guilty in a court of law in 1983, but were given suspended sentences by the judge. And he wouldn't have recognised the outrage at that decision, the outrage that spawned a protest march through Fairview Park and gave angry impetus to the nascent Irish gay rights movement. No, the confident young man I met in the bar that night wouldn't have recognised Declan Flynn. And he wouldn't have recognised 1986, you know, 32 years ago, when I was you know, an 18-year-old art student desperately trying to find another gay person, he wouldn't have recognized the small ads at the back of Hot Press magazine, you know, that every issue included a very innocuous-looking one for icebreakers. It was a group for gay men that met on the first Thursday of the month in a carpeted room in the Clarence Hotel. He wouldn't have recognized the Clarence Hotel then either, you know, back before you 2 bought it, back when it smelled of roast dinners and was the kind of hotel that parish priests would stay in when they came up to see the bishop. He wouldn't have recognized my awkwardness as I sat in a circle with 10 or 12 other novice gays in that room in the Clarence, dunking digestives and milky tea while two bona fide proper gays encouraged <laughs> us to talk you know, about ourselves before announcing that they were going to take us to a gay club if we wanted to come. 
and he would not have recognized my amazement when they led us up the steps to a door that I had passed a thousand times. And he wouldn't have recognized my excitement at being on that dance floor under those swirling lights surrounded for the first time in my life you know, by people like me. Nor would he have recognized my relief at the realization that these dancing defiant queers were laughing, sweating proof that I wasn't the only one. Though I do hope he would have recognized my giddy excitement the next morning when I opened my eyes and remembered I was in the bed of a hairdresser with frosted tips in Portobello. (laughs) (laughs) But I know he wouldn't have recognized June 24th, 1993, 25 years ago this year, when the movement that was fueled by the murder of Declan Flynn finally achieved its first major goal, the decriminalization of sexual acts between men in Ireland. It was a watershed moment for the gay community in Ireland. No longer criminals, June 24th, 1993, marked the moment from which new generations of Irish LGBT people could live their lives more openly and without fear. It marked the beginning of a new era in which the gay community slowly emerged from the shadows and stepped, well, timidly at first, but then with growing confidence, stepped into the light. And my young friend in the bar that night, full of the kind of confidence that comes from growing up in the light, he would have recognized this new era, the legally gay era. Standing there in the middle of his boisterous Saturday night, lit by the swirling colours that spilled from the dance floor and laughing above the noise of banter and flirting and shouted greetings and Beyoncé being crazy in love, the same lights and noise that spilled out of the bar through its wide open doors and big glass windows and out into the street outside, demanding attention and drawing half-interested glances from passers-by and bored bus passengers. Standing there, in the midst of all of that light and noise, he'd have recognised this new Beyoncé era. Of course he would, because he owned it. It's a mad story, and sometimes I think people don't really recognize how far we've come in a period of time that maybe seems long if you're 17, but actually isn't that long at all. And Tony Walsh is a spectacular guy, and Tony was involved in the very first gay pride parade in this country. The very first pride parade, and actually the very first pride event in 1980, when there simply weren't enough people or resources to actually sustain a parade. This is three years before Declan Flynn's murder, Mm -hmm. three years before that incredible historic pride parade, when only 16 of us wandered around town. I was 19, and you can imagine like any 19-year-old, full of the the passion and conceit of wanting to change the world, Mm -hmm. and 16 of us ran around town giving out leaflets explaining the history of the Stonewall riots to bemuse shoppers around Grafton Street. And Izzy Kamikaze, who we're hoping might still make it, she was was one of the others. Absolutely, was part of that as well, yeah. So the highlight of Pride was a picnic Mm. in Merrion Square, and actually, uh, it was a very middle-class affair, cheese and (laughs) crackers and wine, and we were asked to leave Merrion Square by the park wardens, and because there was no anti-discrimination legislation or equality legislation, we just had to bite our tongue and actually... um, move off that space. Because mm. one thing that I think is very instructive about how things have changed is how people came out, you know, what the context of that was. You were 19 at that first march, so how long have you been out? 
I came out in 1979. I just finished a relationship with a woman who also discovered she was gay. It was a little bit like the blind leading the blind. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I came out and became almost immediately politically uh, active because actually one of the things that fueled my activism was not seeing myself reflected in Irish society mm. in 1979. Yeah. There was nobody of my age. And somebody like David Norris was only 15 years older than me, so he would have been 35. He just seems ancient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're 18, anybody Indeed. Yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, would you, did you come out all in one go, or you, you, know, you told your family and everything straight away? Or? I told my mother that I was going to an international gay conference in Belgium and Amsterdam. And when you were 18? 19. And her stepfather was a gay drag queen from Dungarvan. So I think she was <laughs> fairly down with it. At that, <laughs> that feels like there's another show there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but see, even now, to come out at 19 and tell everybody, I mean, that seems pretty remarkable. Well, maybe some of that was enabled by my family upbringing, but I can't overstate the sense of fabulous queer empowerment that I felt because the lesbian gay civil rights movement in Ireland was five years old and I just got swept up in this amazing, dynamic, frenetic energy and I just felt, I want to be a part of this. And as a 19-year-old, I thought, I'm just ready to go out and change the world. And I've always imagined every 19-year-old would feel like that. Not everyone, it turns out. Robbie, you were... Well, not that young. Where you were in college when you? Yeah, so I was eighteen when I came out. Well, well, I came out to myself because I had a girlfriend, and we were both virgins, and we we're like, let's do it. We we're, were each other in three months, and I'll never forget the experience of trying to have sex with this woman. I actually would close my eyes, and it seems so cliche now. And I laugh back at myself. I was thinking of Brad Pitt, like you know how cliche. <laughs> like necessarily Brad Pitt I'd never think of him sexually you know so um oh it was just it was a horrendous experience and it wasn't till that point that I was like maybe I'm gay but that seems very naive for an 18 year old in what year was this you know must have been 2008 and, and you hadn't considered that you were gay before that no I like I was going to schools and like I like I went to an all-boys school and I knew I fancied a few people in my class but I was like oh everyone fancies people at this age you know it just never clicked with me but also I kind of grew up in an environment where we didn't talk about gay and if you heard about it, I'm, I'm from a family of five like my older brothers are like oh we'll kill you if you're touring gay but that will beat you up you know and so I guess that kind of repressed a lot of it where I was just like oh okay I'm not gay then you know growing up so um, when I was like, eight, you skipped over that very casually my older brothers would be saying I'd kill you if you're touring ah, gay ah yeah they're, bit, they're dopes like you know but they're not <laughs> I don't find now but what made it really easy for me is my sister's a lesbian so she came out a few years before that. She's the only girl in the family, so my ma had a little bit of like a, an issue with that. Mm. So I kind of just glided out. I was like, yeah, I'm gay. You know, and my ma just accepted it. She's like, yeah, fine. So my coming out story was very easy, but I guess realizing that I'm gay, yeah. you know, that's a process. And that's why I have so much respect. And I just love queer people who are in school. They just know themselves. They're so unapologetic for it. And like, I just like aspire to be them. <laughs> I want to be that yeah. queer. Yeah. Well, it was one of the things that just constantly amazes me when you meet these kids who are like 16 and they're you're flaming, <laughs> you know, with their, their, their friends, yeah, you know, so whatever. big part of my work is I go into schools and universities and talk about HIV and sexual health as a whole. But I'm getting all these young queer kids saying I'm setting up an LGBT society um, in my school. And I was just one there and, um, and you still seen priests walking around in their robes just there um, last week. And one said, I'm setting up an LGBT society. I'd love to link in and get you back to do. And I was like, what? Well, I mean, I used to be quite hard on them because I thought they were very apolitical. You know, that they were very, it was during the boom years. I thought that as long as young people had their bottle of Bacardi Breezer, they were fine. 
But it turns out I underestimated them because they were, you know, so instrumental in you know, b both referenda we had. Uh, yeah, and I, I just kind of agreed to, to an extent with that as well, because uh, one big part of my job is in the UK and America, I bring young people into Parliament and Congress to make sure that they keep putting money into the Global Fund, which is to eradicate uh, new HIV infections, malaria and TB. And um, young people are great. They have such a great sense of social injustice. Yeah, they and do, if you yeah. give them the platform and the tools for of, of change, they really jump on it. Yeah. Vicky, um, what was your coming out story? Well, it was, I guess, stunted. I knew when I was in uh, fourth class that I was definitely gay, but uh, growing up, my mom was very sick. So it was about three years after she passed away when I was uh, 22 that I was like, oh God, I really need to tell my dad this now. I'd told some friends or whatever. And then I sat him down one day and he was watching EastEnders and he had a fag in his mouth. And he was like, oh God, I thought you were going to say you ran somebody over in the car. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, that went well. Uh, there was so much else going on in the household, though. And it was like, he, uh, my dad worked for RTE. And uh, one of his colleagues and pals, Charles Self, was uh, brutally murdered. So it was very traumatic for him. And he spent years just worrying that I had a support network and friends mm. and all of that kind of stuff, because he saw how isolated the gay people within his life were. But he came around to it. Like, it took him a while. You know, it took yeah. me from fourth class till 22 to be able to go, okay, I'm gay, to him. So I was like, I wasn't expecting it overnight or anything. But that um, marks you out as somebody special, I have to say. Because often I find with mm. us queers, we spend 10 years getting used to it ourselves, and then we announce it over the Christmas dinner to Dad. And Dad has to respond to you right that second and he says something that isn't exactly perfect, something mm. that he mightn't have said exactly that way if he'd had some time to talk about it. And then the gay gets up on their high horse, oh, don't you dare, snap, snap. <laughs> and the next thing is a huge family row that yeah. takes, you know, a year to get over. And I'm like, bitch, it took you 10 years to deal with this. Do you expect dad to be, you know, just, you know, over the stuffing and the turkey, you know, yeah. to get it all perfectly and be the perfect Hollywood dad? Yeah, yeah, I just, I let him have his time and, mm. you know, he wasn't as accepting as, like, we all would like our parents to be initially, but he's great about it now. Yeah. I think also young people forget how quickly things have changed. Jack, in Ovens County Cork, how did they take it? They kind of knew, I think. They were just waiting for me to come out to myself, I think. I was cutting the hedge. I, I kind of live on a farm. And uh, my mom was kind of worried about me because I was going a bit mad. And she said, are you sick? And I said, no. And she said, are you, have you gotten someone pregnant? And I said, definitely not. <laughs> and um, she said, are you gay? And I said, yeah. So It was her third guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad, I think, knew just intuitively. And he only listens to trad music and kind of rock. And he was playing George Michael in the car for about two weeks beforehand. So <laughs> slowly easing me into it. Did you ever ask him about it? Yeah, I brought him to the pub and, you know, it was so anticlimactic. It wasn't a big deal. So oh. just to myself it was, yeah. Mine is actually a bit more protracted because I have a, an older brother who's also gay. And I came out to my brothers and sisters first. And then my brother's like, I'm gay too. <laughs> and we were like, well, okay, well, you better tell the parents because it would be a bit embarrassing for you, older brother, if your seven years younger brother was the first one to come out. Mm. And then he, the next two years, he did nothing. <laughs> he, came, he spent two years writing the perfect coming out letter. <laughs> you know. So eventually I was in the car with my mother. We were driving to Galway for some reason or other. And it was really on my tits now at this stage because I was spending a bit of time at home at the time and my brother was off on the other side of the world so he didn't, it wasn't bothering him every day. So I told my mother and like a, I think a lot of people you kind of think that your mother will probably deal with it better than your dad. 
And my parents are wonderful, but you still have that fear about it. My dad's reaction was zilch, zilcho, nothing. He had no problems about it. He, you know, was just worried about what was for lunch or whatever, <laughs> you know, usual dad stuff. Yeah. And years later, I said to him, that can't have been true. You know, my mother was a bit more upset about it. And I thought, he's, he's pretending to be this cool about it for my mother's benefit. But he was just like, no, it was never an issue. And which I think might have been something to do with being a vet. <laughs> yeah, well, you, well, you see life up very close and you see that it's messy and nothing fits easily into boxes and sometimes you pull out a lamb and it has five legs. You know what I mean? And, and you know, that's my theory, although someone will probably now introduce me to a horribly homophobic vet and my theory will be turned up, so, upside down. Although you're eight years younger than me, I think we both share a situation where our parents would have been better enabled if they'd been surrounded by positive images and positive role models, yes. and they just simply didn't exist mm, at the yeah. time. That's the thing. Like my mother was upset about it um, for a while. I never thought she didn't love me or anything. She was worried about me. She thought I was going to be old and lonely, and you know, she didn't know I was going to be fabulous. And, um, <laughs> and also, you know, there was the religious aspect. It took her a little while to square her Catholicism with, with this, and you know, that's all it was. Um, Jack, you're going to play some music for us. I am. The first song is a John Grant cover. Yeah, Glacier. Yeah, what's the song about? I think it's just about acceptance and those of you who don't accept us, you know, can fuck off, basically. <gasps> <laughs> He's a teacher. <laughs> it's music you teach, isn't it? Music and English, yeah. And it's in a Catholic ethos school, but they're cool, right? They are, yeah, they're getting yeah. cooler. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be nice to have Jack as your you know, teacher when you're a 14 year old gay boy. Definitely pay more attention in school, yeah. <laughs> just want to live your life the best way you know how But they keep on telling you that you are not allowed They say you are sick, that you should hang your head in shame They are pointing fingers and want you to take the blame there are days when people are so nasty and convincing They say things beyond belief that sting and leave you wincing And to boot they say the words come straight down from above And they really seem to think that what they're doing counts as love don't you pay them fuckers as they say don't ever mind They don't give two shits about you It's the blind leading the blind What they want is commonly Referred to as theocracy And what that boils down to Is referred to as hypocrisy Listen to anyone, get answers on your own Even if it means that sometimes you feel quite alone No one on this planet can 
In the monologue earlier, I was sort of going on about young people and not knowing who Diana Ross was. And I understand that. If you're young now, there's so much information available to you, and it's not such a big deal to be gay either, too. So why would you feel the need to look back? But when I came out first, I felt like, well, there was no internet and all of that, but I felt like I was going into this other world that I needed to know the language. So I you know, searched out Ella Fitzgerald and looked at stuff that might have been a little bit before my time because I... I like, you have to pass a course to be gay. <laughs> so, so I understand why someone would now. But I do think that it's good to know where you came from and what went before you. So I do want to go back to talk to our historian here, Tony, about the Declan Flynn case and why that is so important in, in an Irish context. Well, Declan Flynn basically came on the back of something that, that uh, Vicky uh, referred to, Charles Self, who was an RT designer, and he was stabbed 14 times in his own home, and the police in early 1982 decided, bizarrely to us, to concentrate the murder investigation in the gay community, and they ended up harassing one and a half thousand gay men and it led to protests outside Garda stations. It was considered a witch hunt and relations between the Garda and, and the gay community were fraught. And in that context, Declan Flynn was murdered, set upon a guy with a speech impediment, 33, horribly mutilated in Fairview Park. And the police very quickly rounded up his assailants. They ranged in age, five of them from 14 to 18, two of them were in the army. And there had been complaints, and this is what's really egregious, they were made aware six months beforehand 
that there was this group of people who'd set themselves up a self-appointed anti-gay vigilante group. And actually, when it came to court, they actually said they were up in the park to clear the, the park of queers, bufters and benders. And when the judge let them off with suspended manslaughter sentences, essentially what it said to us was that a gay man's life had, had no value. Yeah. And here's the thing. When we, when we realized that his, his assailants had got off, we called the march from Liberty Hall up through Amiens Street, past Declan's murderers who had lit celebratory bonfires the night beforehand after they'd been released. Now, depending on, on reports, it was somewhere between four and 800 people. It was the first large-scale massing of lesbians and gay men in Ireland. We had student union groups. We had uh, left field political parties. Because that's um, important too, isn't it? Because it was also oh, the first time that straight people came out visibly in support. Ab- you're absolutely right. It was the first time that we had all of our straight allies just deciding, you know what? It's, it was a protest against violence against women and gay men. And that was particular because uh, at the time there was a lot of, uh, of violence mm. being experienced. My feeling when we walked up to Fairview Park for that rally, I actually thought we were going to have stones lobbed mm. at us. We were angry and fearful fearful at the same time. And the only good thing that came out of all of that misery was we funneled all that anger into Ireland's first proper pride parade three months later when 150 of us walked down newly pedestrianised Grafton Street and the police were going, sorry. You dressed as a pink triangle in a pair of fishnet tights. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, But the police weren't going to allow us walk down Grafton Street and we said, excuse me, we're having our day in the sun. This is really important. We need to express that visibility and we also need to do it in something that's a little bit more positive to try and overcome just the, the shocking tawdryness and anger that had followed us yeah. after Declan Flynn's murder. Now, Vicky, of course, things have changed in so many dramatic ways, and you know that's mm. wonderful. But of course, it doesn't mean that all of those things are totally in the past, because you were yeah, gay-bashed uh, not that long ago. and Two years ago now, uh, around International Women's Day, it was the weekend. We were just, me and two mates, walking home. And we'd actually just been pushed out of a pub by some bloke who wouldn't kind of leave us alone was kind of harassing us all night. We were just like, we don't want to talk to you. And then we are just like, let's just go and watch ABBA videos on the projector, <laughs> get some Charlies, have a laugh. And uh, it was myself and my two friends and one was straight, one was gay and I'm obviously gay, but I was the very much the identifiably gay one with the short hair and a big jacket and mm. skinny jeans and docks and stuff. Yeah. But he, he turned around to us and he just was like, go on girls, take off your trousers, show me knickers and show me your arses. And... We turned around and we were like, ah, oh, mate, no. Like, just turned around and said no. And it escalated into, you know, feminist whores, all that kind of stuff. And I had a bottle of uh, tonic, like a plastic one, and he grabbed it from my hand and he clubbed me over the head with it because I was the butch-looking one. And then that set my two femme friends off. They're a lot more butch than me, I can tell you that. They threw him against the pet shop window and it just escalated and escalated and I was trying to get them off him and just being like, come on, this is mental. Why, why is this happening? Like, let's get up the road. Uh, one of the, my friends had like just bought loads of tights and pennies and they were just all over the street. So I was like trying to pick them up and like the Charlies and everything. And he kept just roaring at me. And then he said, I voted for yes equality, but I didn't vote for that. And pointed at me and I was just like, mate, go home. It's fucking over. And he just punched me in the face four times saying fucking queer. And that was really shit. Um... Mm. Yeah, and it was just like this kind of this misogynistic attack that turned into a queer bash because, you know, we're still kind of easy targets or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's and still out there. It, it is, and um, people don't talk about it in a way. And one of the things I think that we have learned 
in the last few years mm. is the importance of not keeping these things to ourselves anymore and refusing to be shamed by them. Yeah, it's it's not my shame. It's his shame that he did yes. that. I, I'm a proud queer woman and he was not going to take that away from me or my friends. And, and that's why I shared the story. I was like, this guy needs to be outed. This can't happen anymore. And we're not talking about it because we're living in this like, oh, marriage equality, love, 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 you know, whatever. Mm. But it's, it opened up something else and it was just, you know, the street harassment that women face going home on a Saturday night. Like we're told not to walk home alone. There was three of us, you know, yeah. and I don't like saying that because like I love the city and I love Dublin and I do feel safe sometimes walking home at night. But like I do definitely cross the road now and stuff. It's really important that people like Vicky also call that behaviour out because we can't create a demand for it to be recognised as a hate crime by the police either mm. or documented yeah. as such unless somebody like Vicky takes a stand when, when that type of behaviour mm-hmm. happens. Yeah, It filters down as well, you know, I think if you didn't call it out, it makes it acceptable. And yeah. I think yeah, people exactly. wouldn't, you know. Yeah. So. And do, you, do you see it in school? Not so much. Like, and obviously bullying goes on in schools, mm-hmm. but I really noticed it. Like, I, I grew up, I suppose, in a secondary school, like all, all of us, uh, where, where it wasn't talked about, you know, mm-hmm. homosexuality. Sex ed was, this is a penis, this is a vagina. Off you go. Do you know? I so missed that class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you say, kids are coming out a lot earlier. And yeah, it's just a non-issue. That's really cool to see that, you know, if, if someone's out, the lads are like, cool, Grant. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's it's one of the big, massive changes that just constantly strikes me when I see these kids in school. And I, I think the referendum did have a part, though, to play in that. I 100% agree with that. Mm. Not that it wasn't normal before, but if, if something is just in the Constitution... Yeah, well, I, I'm, you know, I get asked about the referendum a lot when I'm, you know, abroad or whatever. And one of the things I, I've always find myself saying to people is, I, I wouldn't recommend you know, a referendum to do it because it's annoying and painful and difficult and risky, but it turned out to be much more powerful than I had anticipated. I thought that the day after a yes for marriage equality, everything would be exactly the same, that I would feel exactly the same, everything would be the same, except gay people would be getting married. But I feel that the day after that, because it had turned into a referendum about gay people and how Ireland feels about gay people, that it did change everything. I feel different in this country since. I felt like a citizen properly for the first time. And that's not something that I was aware of until the referendum. And just knowing, you know, to a percentage point what the rest of the country thinks about me made me just feel more free and able to be me on the street or whatever. And and you can see that in other people, the hand-holding thing that you see nowadays you just did not see beforehand. You're not fighting as much. Yes. Yeah, it's just like, oh, Grant, okay. And, and, and in fact, it's also taken some of the power out of even the assholes, I think, because you know, if someone shouts, you know, queer at me in the street or something now, you know, I think my fear in the past wasn't that I was going to get beaten up, because mm. that was pretty, pretty rare, but the fear was that everybody else in the earshot agreed with them. Yeah. Whereas now, I know for a fact that at least, you know, 64% <laughs> of the people in, within earshot think he's the asshole. Yeah. And that has been very liberating. Actually, when I look back at the 80s and 90s, institutionalised violence, too, it nearly always seems to be a pushback against increased visibility. Yeah. And in a perverse sort of way, that gives me hope. Because to me, it seems like we're experiencing the last gasp of a bigoted rump mm. that is being 
devalued and is being disabled, that we are finally making a space to recognise some innate positive values in Irish, in, in Irish people, and that's fairness and tolerance and acceptance yeah. that in, in, the, in the past sometimes have been diminished by this violent reactionary uh, behaviour. Vicky, you're going to perform for us. I am, I yes. am, I am. I'm just my marriage referendum poem. So. Um, do you need to tell us anything about it beforehand? Like every good lesbian, it's a love poem. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it is called Two Fat Ducks. It's called Two Fat Ducks. Why? 22nd of May. Bingo. It's a nod, it's a nod to our friend Shirley. Yeah. <clears throat> this was very nearly a breakup poem. Teary-eyed, I begged, struggled, suppressed my true self so she could see a better me. And for her, my harp strings felt silent. And that year's love, it was violent. It hit me harder than before, begging her to hold me dear, feared, fucked up, forlorn, forgotten, and topping off my days, wishing my life were her away. And if she wouldn't have me, half of me had always presumed she'd be my groom. Old-fashioned and dapper, her rejection, like one of Joyce's slappers in my face, my love felt nothing. Just disgrace. My heart stood still as I contemplated having to leave this place. This place I love most, this isle of green, and these rose-coloured glasses hided my eyes red from crying if I had to leave. My love, she was dying. But my love, my era, she wasn't scared of me. You see, born, bred, buttered here, dreading having to leave her if a no came true, but it didn't, because we stood tall, spoke our true views on homo sapien date, and we contemplated commitment for one and for all. And now I'm feeling lucky like a four-leaf clover that that poxy referendum is done and it's over. And I know now my romantic garland, she's not dead nor gone. In fact, she is alive and well and up full of passion and awe for all of those tiny X's and boxes that changed us in the eyes of the law, legally binding our love, our grow. And lesser's no more, because that landslide raised us up from the ashes of boars and they burnt themselves down. And I don't give two fat talks about thems and theirs or whens and wheres. And it's not that I don't care what happens to their family. It's just that their missionary bores me. How men and women do their mating, it's a bit of a mystery to me. Kind of like folklore. And I'm not asking for their flattery anymore. And I'm not being battered by their no, because their no had no limit, but no limit, no boundary, no more to how much I adore her. I want her to spoon me and Shan knows me to sleep. I'd get down on bended knee and proclaim me her wife, because this country I love opened her heart and 1,201,607 people screamed, I'm yours. And you can marry whoever you want and whomever you choose. Doesn't bother me as long as I have this right to say I do too. But on that great day, the 22nd of May, 62% said that love conquers all. And yes, we said yes, they did yes. Thank you. Earlier on, I, I wanted to get your sort of coming out stories. And Robbie, you and I have a similar experience about the um, having to come out to new boyfriends to tell them that you're HIV positive. And there was a time when it used to annoy me that I would get all the requests to talk about you know, HIV and then Robbie comes along. And I'm, so now I say, oh no, there's a much younger, cuter one you can talk to about it. And then Tony is also living with HIV. But it is one of the things that really annoys me about it is having to tell people over and over again because unlike being gay you just tell them once but with the bloody HIV thing you have to constantly do it and it feels the same sort of stress about it yeah so 
every queer person knows what it's like to come out, you know, and that stress and everything that comes into your head before you. And sometimes people don't care and you're like, you kind of want a reaction because you built it up so much in your head. <laughs> well, living with HIV is a constant coming out story because yeah. you're on a fifth date with a guy, you don't have to say to him, by the way, I'm gay. Like, you know, we know it's once you come out. But um, when you live with HIV, it's a very different thing because and it's a very stigmatizing thing. But I like to turn that on its head because people are like, oh, it's the worst thing about dating someone, blah, blah, blah. But I actually used it to my advantage because I call um, HIV disclosure my filtration system, essentially. (laughs) Because on the fifth date, when they get to know you as a person, I have a five-date rule. Tell them on the fifth date. I have a three-date rule. Oh, you just (laughs) jump right to it, you know? (laughs) And maybe it takes longer for people to like me, I don't know. But on the fifth date, I say, they know me. So I was like, okay, I've somewhat emotionally involved myself with this person, and now is a good time to tell them. And when they know you as a human, and then you can tell them all these facts now about, you know, taking a pill every day, living as long as anyone else, being non-infectious, simply not passing mm-hmm. it on. If they still have a bad reaction after educating them, do you really want them in the first place? You know, it's kind of like a lucky escape. It's a major red flag. Unless they're really hot. Unless they're really hot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go in confident knowing that, you know, I'm not a second-rate citizen. I'm not dirty or unclean or all of these things. I'm like a good boyfriend. You know, I'm a good human being. I'm sound. So I feel confident going in. So, and HIV is just one part of me. So um, Morris, my fellow here, who's in the audience, so we're each other four and a half years, I was all big and mighty going on to the fifth date because I just came out of a relationship where he made me feel like I was the worst person in the world. Every time we had sex, he would say something about risk. I just constantly felt terrible about myself. So I went in knowing no one is ever going to make me feel that again. If they try to, I'm like, goodbye. I'm going on to the next one. You know, I really had that in. But I was terrified as well because he's gorgeous and I didn't want to lose him. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I actually, we were chatting for six months on Grinder before we met up. Oh and my I thought it was God, you weirdo. I know, <laughs> I know. So yeah, come on to the fifth day. It brought him to this lovely wine bar and I sat him down. And I was like, Morris, look, I'm HIV positive. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. So um. Yeah, I, was t- I told him, and I was like, I remember shaking, and I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll read up on it about it. And then, yeah, I just felt so vindicated, you know, like, mm-hmm. I was like, this is going somewhere. And in Ireland, no one talks about HIV when I was diagnosed in 2012. I didn't know a single person living with HIV, even though there's thousands of people living with HIV in mm-hmm. Ireland, especially within the uh, men of men community, the LGBT community. So I didn't know how to do any of this or how to like you know wade through the dating scene especially when no one knows about HIV in Ireland so I want every single person of my HIV not to have that issue on the yeah. fifth day or maybe say it on the fourth day and it's a non-issue so I think our message basically is the safest person you can have sex with is someone who's HIV positive and on medication but no one was voicing that, so we yeah. decided to, because I want everyone to have that experience and to have great sex. <laughs> Just in case that, that was over to some people's heads there, the reason why it's safer to have sex with somebody who's HIV positive and knows it is because somebody who thinks they're not HIV positive may have become HIV positive. Um, one way to get over the having to come out constantly about being HIV positive is to become a well-known drag queen with HIV, because everyone already knows. <laughs> that was my next step. Yeah. Um, Jack, um, you're going to do another song for us, which oh, yeah. is called Myth. Yeah, so. Jack O'Rourke's new single, Out of July. Love will be my accolades Face my psychic monsters The scary ones that ran and raved 
Leave no trace of soul Love, I got no secrets here Except the ones between us When your heel can't have the hurt Let our bodies intertwine in time Don't be listening to the angel On your left side He's holier than thou Don't be tempted by the demons On your right They're gonna reap what they sow It'll be our finest moment We'll carve a myth That those kids will learn at school About two ancient lovers who love by breaking all the rules Lover will ride Pegasus From here to ever after And rewrite all them prophecies Let our bodies intertwine in time Don't be listening to the angel On your left side He's holier than thou don't be tempted by the demons on your right They're gonna reap what they sow It'll be our finest moment We'll carve a myth that those kids will learn at school About two ancient lovers Who love by breaking all the rules Lover be my Icarus Fly too high from me now The suns that burn too brightly But I'll catch you when you fall Down there, we thought you weren't going to make it, and you've made it just for the end. I thought I wasn't going to make it. Izzy here, like Tony, has been uh, in the trenches fighting for rights for queers and women and all sorts since Especially all prehistory. Sorts. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, just quickly explain your name to people because it is the world's greatest name. It is the world's greatest name. Like, if I was a drag queen, that's the I name know. I would choose. I know. I usually say that I was given that name because I fly into women and set fire to them. <laughs> a girlfriend gave me that name, you'd have to ask her. <laughs> and but so easy to tell us like, about your involvement like with Tony right back at the very beginning of the gay rights movement. In this I know Tony since, I think, 1982. But what was it like to be a lesbian in Ireland in 1982? It was ridiculous, frankly. I mean, you, I think finding the gay community was quite yeah, a was challenge in the first place. It was there, but it was all very sort of coded and yeah. secret, you know. And in a way, gay men were more visible, though, than lesbians, Completely, I think. yeah. yeah. But uh, I did more or less, I, I did eventually more or less stumble on the community and throw myself in. Yeah, Tony was one of the very first people I met, really. But, like, you were only 19 or something when you 19. came out, right? And so, I mean, I think 19 is young now. I mean, but in 1982... 
I met Ireland. a few gay men who were about that age and one other lesbian who was that age. Mm. Women tended to come out later than men. I mean, I think women's sexuality in general was just so sort of mm. shrouded yeah. in that period yeah. that it took women longer to find their feet, you know. Yeah. So I knew a handful of gay men who were around the same age. I was at one of the first meetings of the first youth group that met in the Hirschfeld back in those days. I met a second woman who was the same age as me at that. And, uh, there was two of you. Yes, there was yeah. a, and, the, and a bunch of guys. And then there was, you know, a bunch of chicken hawks who used to hang around outside the door <laughs> at the time when we were in there. But no comparison uh, yeah. to what there is now. I mean, I think if, if, one, if there's one really brilliant thing that's changed, it's that young people have a, a bit more support coming out. Mm. They're much mm. more likely yeah. to have support of family or friends, or, or just to know they're not the only one in the world. You yeah. know, we really did. We really did feel... Izzy, there was also something else that I think it's, it's worth reminding people. Any consideration of youth sexuality, not just queer youth sexuality, mm. was just not happening. When we set up the, Ireland's first LGBT group, we were refused recognition by the National Youth Council of Ireland and also mm-hmm. Corda Las Oiga, refused. And, and the NGF who hosted the youth group at that time, they were actually very cagey about anybody who was under 21. The, the age of consent in Britain was 21. And of course, you know, I mean, we were criminalised here. There wasn't any age of consent. Mm. Yeah. You couldn't consent, you know, even if you were... As old as Tony. But, you know, the, 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 the gay organisations were in a very, very vulnerable yeah. position. And to protect themselves, they had to kind of distance themselves from young people. And, and of course, you know, uh, criminalisation at that time technically only affected men. It was, it was, you know, obviously, you know, women were involved in the movement and fighting for that yeah. because it affected, every, it affected the whole community. Really. It affected everybody. Uh, I mean, I think it affected straight people as well. You know, yeah. I think it affected... The culture, really. It was about how the culture saw sexuality and there wasn't anything about choice or identity or, Mm. you know, anything that came from yourself in it. It was all about kind of patterns of behaviour that you were supposed to conform to and uh, Ireland was a very difficult place for anybody who who didn't do that. The alternative, there was an alternative, but it was emigration. Yeah. yeah, And, you know, so many gay people emigrated. When I think of the people that I met in those first, first couple of years, yeah. you know, actually, I would say a majority of them went away. And then they would come back yeah. on holiday. We'd be working away here on, on the coal face while they were... And they'd come back and they'd say, oh, things are getting a bit better. Well, I mean, it's a good part of the reason why I went. And I was living abroad in 1993 for... A lot of those reasons. I think, uh, paradoxically, the HIV crisis actually contributed more to decriminalisation than people let on. And uh, I was involved from the kind of late 80s. And, you know, what you'd now consider to be kind of service provision-based organisations, I mean, they were set up by unpaid activists. They were were run by volunteers. There was no funding. And uh, I was involved in a... a, more or less fictitious organisation called the Lesbian and Gay Health Caucus, which was uh, me and Mick Quinlan and Shaz Oye, I think, at its peak membership. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't get funding for, say, for sex information. You'd get funding for, you know, there were very, very few people living with HIV here at the time. It was kind of ludicrous. You'd apply for funding for, you know, a leaflet 
about uh, better nutrition or something for people with HIV, right? And you'd get the money and then you'd produce 40 copies of and then we'd get like, you know, 10,000 safer sex packs produced out of the same money. (laughs) And the HSE's logo would go on one thing and it wouldn't go on the other thing and it was all just totally uh, ridiculous. So we did a submission to the National AIDS Strategy Council and part of that was about how decriminalisation was affecting health promotion work. And I've always believed that although that wasn't uh, (laughs) name-checked, let's say, at the time, that that was influential in the the decision that was made. Yeah, well, it's funny because one of the sad but beautiful things in recent years for me personally is when the movie The Queen of Ireland was around older Irish gays and lesbians who had left Ireland in the 70s and 80s because of that atmosphere and never returned and whose parents had died in the meantime, have started writing to my mother as a sort of a surrogate and telling my mother, you know, about their lives and what happened to them. Phil Moore was a a surrogate mother for a huge amount, wasn't she, of the the gay community. Uh, what was that organisation called? Her, Parents, Parents, Parents Inquiry. Inquiry. Yeah. It was Harry Moore who had a TV shop, hi-fi shop on, on Dawson, Street. Dawson Street. And his wife, Phil, basically had gay sons and they approached the National Gay Federation yeah. and they said, what can you do for our sons? And they said, you have to do something for us. And yeah, the organisation went ahead and actually tried to facilitate him. But these, this group of parents enabled... A wider group of parents and all volunteers would, over, over the space of 20 or 30 years, would go around, take it upon themselves to go around the country and talk to other groups of parents who were dealing with the same problems that they dealt with. Tony, by the way, has a one-man show. Come, when is that going to be on It's uh, opening the project at the end of November end and it's November. actually closing on World Aids Day. And I saw it as a work in progress uh, not that long ago. It's called I Am Tony Walsh. It's brilliant, Tony. Thank you. So I'm looking forward to seeing the finished project. Uh, Jack, you are going to play us out. I am. Yeah, what's the song about? This is a tune that I wrote kind of to myself when I was struggling about coming out. And I think Izzy and yourself and Tony, I think we have a lot to be grateful for your work. So, Thank you, Izzy. Stand tall, crash they fall one by one, and laughter turns sour in pursuit of yonder. Tomorrow comes creeping, your boats are struck down, walking full of bravado, but your eyes wane a ton. That you dotted, you sunk out and bothered. You long for the nightlife that gave you your cue. Oh, losing sight of what matters, fond over and flattered. You close for the emperor, blocking your view. Shining for you Brighter than morning stars I'm 
shining for you Light in your darkest hour when you're hopeless and hiding When you're effing and blinding I'll bring your ship home I'm shining, I'm shining Brighter than morning stars, I'm shining for you. Light in your darkest star when you're hopeless and hiding. When you're effing and blinding, bring your ship home. I'm shining, I'm shining for you. Thank you um, to everyone for being with us. And um, I want to thank Robbie Lawler, Izzy Kamikaze for her late entrance, Vicky Curtis, thank you so much. Tony Walsh, I am Tony Walsh from the Project Art Centre through November, and Jack O'Rourke. Uh, thanks to our audience for being with us here too. You can find out everything about this episode and all the other episodes of Pantasocracy on pantasocracy.ie. And uh, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>